Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the battle for the soul of the world. My guest is Tom Cheatham, who is a philosopher, a biologist, a poet, and a professor. He is author of many books, including The World Turned Inside Out, Henri Corbin and Islamic Mysticism, Imaginal Love, The Meanings of Imagination in Henri Corbin and James Hillman, All the World an Icon, Henri Corbin and the Angelic Function of Beings, and Green Man Earth Angel, The Prophetic Tradition and the Battle for the Soul of the World. Tom lives in Maine. And now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Tom. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Hi. Thank you very much. It's delightful to be here. I mean, I really mean that. It is. It's very mellow. I think we may yet have a, a heated discussion since our topic is about the battle for the soul of the world, although I suspect you and I are on the same side of that battle. I think probably we definitely are. Yeah. Yeah. I figured since we're talking about a battle, I'd wear my red jacket today. Okay. Yeah, geez. I, yeah, if I'd thought of that, I would have worn something more martial. <laughs> well, to begin with, you make no bones about it in the very first page of your book on the green man that Western materialism is very dangerous and destructive and could lead to the extinction of the human race. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I still think that, yeah. Um, all right. Well, uh, I mean, so, so my, yeah. So this kind of discussion, the battle for the soul of the world and an, an attack on Western materialism seems has a different um, uh, faces depending upon where you are when you're first encountering this kind of narrative, all right? And I, I guess what I'll say about my own position here is that for better or worse, and, and I think actually for the better, I've been pinioned between the two poles here much of my life. That is to say, I have a uh, spiritual or philosophical or I increasingly realize religious perspective. And I'm a trained scientist and, um, and Therefore, the training that I got as a scientist was based on materialist premises, though I wasn't clear about it 
until many decades later. And so what I'll say is that it's still relatively easy for me to see both sides in this schism, as Henri Corbin called it. One, it's one of, he would have said, it's one of the schisms that defines the Western project. I suppose one way of uh, contrasting Western materialism would be with maybe the earliest Western religions, which were filled, for example, with spirits and angels and uh, many deities. Yeah, so, gosh, this is hard to talk about. Um, um, so, so let me, <laughs> uh, let me put it as follows. Um, the, what we're talking about in, in one set of terms, <laughs> and the problem here is that there are lots of different terminologies to use to think about this, but since you talk about the early Western religions, uh, let's, let's talk about this in terms of transcendence and imminence. That is to say, is is the human soul um, fundamentally not of this world? Is it in the world, but not of it? Or is the human soul a biological and chemical um, manifestation of our physical being? And Th that distinction goes all the way back as far as you can, as far as you can trace it in the Western tradition. I mean, it goes back to the ancient Greeks. It pops up in the Judeo-Christian and Islamic traditions. And, 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 and so one of the tensions for all of these traditions, religious and philosophical, is to try to get clear about what the relation between those two poles really is, because we are here. I do have a body, um, and yet for, for millennia in most traditions that I'm familiar with, people generally also have this, even if they're materialists, they have this nagging feeling that maybe Maybe it's not just gooey biology. Maybe there's something else. And, and, and the question is, how are those two apparently radically different modes of being, how are they related? And in the Western tradition, most recently, that is to say with Descartes, um, uh, who's in, in some sense the poster boy for modern materialism, um, he was trying to figure out the, 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 how to put the two things together. Um, that is to say, he says, on the one hand, there are, there are physical substances, and on the other hand, there are mental substances. And he was never really particularly adept at, at, at putting them together. Um, and yet he believed fully that there, there were these two components. 
after Descartes and certainly after Newton, um, it became fairly clear that a materialist science was just really good at doing stuff. <laughs> and over the last few centuries, um, it has seemed as if modern Western materialist science must be true. Because look at all the stuff we can do with it. You know, computers and atomic bombs and, I mean, medicine and all this stuff. We're just incredibly successful at it. And so it must be true. And if that kind of materialist reductionism is, is the, is the fundamental assumption of much of modern science. I mean, I guess all of modern science. And yet people still have this nagging suspicion that there must be something else. And one of the primary places in the Western scientific tradition where this becomes really problematic is the discussion of the nature of consciousness. And that's a very deep and complicated rabbit hole to go down. But speaking really loosely, every time you go in with your tweezers and your knives, or your extremely fancy um, neurological imaging um, uh, uh, machinery, which I find extremely amazing. You know, you get in there and you poke around and, and there's nobody in there. <laughs> you know, you just find chemistry. Um, and, and you don't find a place where you can put your finger and say, that's consciousness. Um, and so you find another bifurcation. This time, the one I'm thinking of is the one within contemporary neuroscience. One group of legitimately materialist scientists will say, it's all bunkum, all this consciousness business. We're going to find how consciousness works at the level of material. And then you have other contemporary neuroscientists who say, no, we're not. <laughs> and, and, and so all the way down to the very roots of science, you've got that same division. So, so one of the questions that interests me, and this, I mean this at a practical, existential, lived experience level, how do we think about this problem in ways that maybe can stand outside the Western, the, 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 the dominant Western tradition? And, and that's what I'm tending to think about now on the basis of my long familiarity with, with Corbin and Hillman and, and a bunch of other philosophically minded people. One of the terms that comes up in your book, Green Man, Earth Angel, which is actually the basis of our discussion today, is anima mundi. It's different than the individual soul of the person. It's the soul of the world. 
Let's talk about the distinction, if we can, between the personal soul and the soul of the world, if there is such a difference. Yeah, you know, I mean, okay, so footnote. <laughs> Nobody understands this stuff, okay? So there's a, there's a footnote. Nobody understands this um, in, in the way in which we in the contemporary world usually use the term understanding. And, and I think the reason for that is that we are so deeply embedded in a world which is, by God, mysterious, that we're never going to understand it in the way in which contemporary science and much of much of contemporary culture as a whole means that term. I'm still in my footnote here. I don't think that means that we are totally ignorant. What I think that means is that we have to give more um, what you might call cognitive importance to what Corban and Hillman called the thought of the heart. End of footnote. So, <laughs> in order to grapple with the distinction between the anima vagula, which is one way of referring to the, to the wandering human soul, and the anima mundi, is to not think about it in the terms that we're used to using as 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 contemporary um, mechanistically and 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 um, even philosophically trained minds. I think that the that one of the best ways into Stepping back to talk about the battle for the soul of the world is to think, for lack of a better term, poetically. That is to say, if, if you, <laughs> in one sense, this is super easy for me to explain, depending upon the the nature of the experience of your listeners. If you try to talk about these things without backing off from science and philosophy as it is typically understood in the West, you've already given up the game. The best way to understand this talk about soul and religion and the relationship between matter and spirit is to back off and get outside of the Western, what, what the poet Charles Olson called the Western box and, and look for other styles of knowing. And as some of us, as we, as we attempt to do that, we think we're losing our minds. And I, and I've been there, you know. Well, wait, I can't give up science. I can't give up philosophy. If I give up those things, then I'm just being foolish. And that little person who says that stuff, you, you gotta, 
you, you got to tell them to just shut up for a little while and give this a try, okay? Because in my experience, that's a really strong little guy. <laughs> you know, he. Th this is where the battle for the soul of the world is fought. That guy will tell you that, hey, 2,000 years of Western history proves that analytical reasoning and, 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 uh, and, and, and materialism is true. And logic is the way to think. And he gets very, very, very tight about this. So what do you do? You bring in the poets. You bring in the artists. You bring in, for God's sakes, the musicians. Many of whom have been kind of sadly convinced by the little guy with the with the equations that what they do isn't it might be fun and entertaining, but it isn't really important. And the argument that Corbin and Hillman and a whole flood of a new flood of contemporary philosophers and artists and poets they're starting to catch on they begin to realize that oh my god we've given up the game look at every college in the united states where's the money all goes to the sciences what about music what about the arts what about poetry Poof! we all know that's nonsense just like we proved that religion was nonsense you've got to at least, and here's my, here's my suggestion. And so for some people, this move is not a problem at all. You know, they just go on with their lives. But more people than I think are aware of it have, have at least subliminally bought into the materialist, rationalist, reductionist vision of reality. It's essential to understand the battle for the soul of the world, that you at least shut that guy up long enough to pay real, serious, spiritual, ontological, and I love the word ontological because it makes this sound important, but if you're in a theological tradition, call it theological, accept the theological importance of poetry, and the arts as standing outside of and in fact including within them the sciences this this has taken me many decades to get a pretty decent feeling for i am now to my own surprise reasonably comfortable with saying yeah, the sciences are fantastic. They're wonderful. They do all sorts of great things with stuff and matter. And I love lots of that stuff. But that, that kind of understanding of the world is a subset of something much, much greater. So great, in fact, that that's why I said we don't understand it. At the, at the limits, we really don't understand it. And so what you want to be able to do, it seems to me, is to say, well, you know, this morning I'm going to be a physicist.
because I have these jobs to do which require Newtonian mechanics or quantum mechanics, and that starts getting off into the realm of the weird very quickly. And you go ahead and you do those things. And then at night, you listen to Mozart or Stevie Ray Vaughan or whoever your favorite composer is, you know, and you, and you acknowledge that that is not merely entertainment. It's your soul imagining the world in different ways. And so I'll, I'll bring this to a little conclusion here. In order for, for us to continue as a species, we are, I, th I think, going to have to see reductionist rationality as an extremely powerful and useful part of this world that our imagination lets us encounter. Beautifully put. I totally agree. But you even go a step further because you're very critical of religion and specifically Christianity in a way that suggests to me that it has somehow succumbed to this materialistic worldview. And I can attest Having grown up in the Midwest, in the United States, in a small, conservative Jewish community, that I was raised to believe that Judaism is the most rational religion. And that's good to be rational. All of the aspects of my tradition, Judaism, that weren't so rational, were just hidden. So, it seems that there's something in us, most of us, across cultures as far as I know, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not widely read in a wide variety of cultures, but I, I think people who are would probably agree that we tend, we as a species tend to prefer the clear and the distinct and the simple to the mysterious, the terrifying, the complicated, and the unwieldy, all right? And religions across the board tend to put you in an encounter with just those frightening, unwieldy, confusing, sometimes horrifying, and often magnificent realms of reality. And imagine, imagine, I mean, from whichever tradition that you are most familiar with, in, in, let's see, let's imagine Muhammad, you know, on the, the night of his trip to heaven, or, 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 or Paul on the road to Damascus, or Moses, you know, or Abraham in their encounters with God. You don't want to live like that every single second of your life. You couldn't do it. You'd never eat. You'd never procreate. It's too disruptive. <laughs> so that's pretty extreme. But, you know, it's so much easier to be institutionalized. <laughs> it is so much easier to wake up in the morning and say, ah, nine o'clock, I got to go to work. Well, most people go way earlier than that. 
um, and to live your life more or less habitually. And when you need to think about God or religion or philosophy, you, you go to a church or a college <laughs> and people tell you what the truth is. And you say, oh, yeah, you're an authority figure. I'll buy that. And you don't have to worry about any of this stuff about facing, <laughs> facing the spirits or the gods, you know, and in, 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 in indigenous, many indigenous uh, cultures, they have shaman and they do that for you, <laughs> you know, and it's hard. It's bloody awfully confusing. And uh, you bring it back into the discussion that I was trying to have. You see, the, 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 the poets and the artists, they're over, <laughs> they're over on the side where the prophets and the mystics in all the religions, that's where those folks live. So in, the, in a secular culture, it's easy to talk about artists and poets. In a deeply religious culture, you talk about the mystics. And the mystics are dangerous. They're not just dangerous to themselves, because when you encounter the living God or an angel or however the transcendent appears to you, it doesn't just blow you up. It's a problem for the society as a whole which is why societies with either whichever tradition is dominant there, the church, or whatever stands in the place of the church, is always pretty nervous about the mystics, which is why, you know, in the Catholic tradition, it takes a few hundred years for them to decide whether a given person was a knucklehead and a danger or an actual mystic and a saint. You know, it takes a while, and, and I'm not unsympathetic to that, you know. Um, there are crazy people wandering the streets of most cities in the world who are um, disruptive and dangerous, and it's really hard to know which one of those crazy people is actually speaking for whichever spirit you're su suggesting, you know, that this person might be channeling. The point is that reality is it's not. Let's see how do you phrase this. The point is that it's not. The conclusion is not that the world is rational and there are crazy people in it. I think, at least temporarily, we ought to suggest no, no. The world is wild and weird and full of crazy stuff. And we're not sure most of the time eh, which one of the crazies we should be paying attention to, if any. You're suggesting, as I hear you, that rationalism has become a refuge for people in that wild, wild world. And, and that, unfortunately, is a very dangerous refuge because what it leads to is bombs and war and pollution. The human race has probably never been as close as it is now to facing the possibility of our own extinction caused by our own behavior. Yeah, it's this is this is um, yes, I, I don't disagree. Let's let's put it a little differently, um, because I don't. It, when if if we are to say that rationalism has gotten in the, us in this trouble, we're we're going to get some serious pushback from all sorts of people, and and they won't be wrong, because 
rationalism is can be a refuge, but it also also gets us um, it gets us um, um, lots of really good stuff. It's not that the world is totally irrational. I mean, there's lots of things we know here. Uh, um, don't get me, yeah, don't let me lose my train of thought. But here's a little story that I, that I, that I made up some time ago, which I'm very fond of, and maybe somebody else will be too. So uh, Isaac Newton, right? Quintessential, you know, poster child for, for rational materialism. Well, and as many people know, he was also an alchemist. And in fact, he did a lot more work in alchemy than he ever did writing the Principia Mathematica. Um, <laughs> so imagine, imagine Newton, you know, he's doing his alchemy. And if you're familiar with Jung or Hillman or any of those people, you'll have some sense of what, what they meant by alchemy. And it's, it's a nightmare of complexity. It's not merely intellectual. It's emotional and physical. It's a, if you read the alchemical treatises, or at least as they're discussed by Jung and Hillman, there's incredible psychic pain and suffering and darkness. and It's all confusion. What you're looking for is to transform something into gold and make yourself immortal. But it's incredibly difficult. And I suddenly occurred to me the other day that when Newton said, oh, heck with this, let's do some mathematics for a while. And he said, you know, what if the world were describable in terms of forces and matter and motion? And she so comes up with F equals MA and, you know, and he writes the Principia and we have modern science. But what if you imagine that he did that as a break from the real work? That was easy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that was the easy stuff is to do modern physics and to shoot rockets at the moon and projectile motion and all that stuff. And then he said, well, okay, we got, at least I got something done. Now I'll go back to alchemy because this is more important. It's extremely complicated and nobody understands it. So, so it's, I, it's, not here's the here's the take home message from part of that. It's not that rationalism is bad, because I don't think it is. It's incredibly useful. What's dangerous, and I get this directly from James Hillman. What's what's dangerous is literalism, because literalism, you know, uh, I always have rocks here, but. Literalism and fundamentalism go go hand in hand. Because if you know the literal truth about something, then you're done. You know? <laughs> then, then you don't have confusions. You don't have problems. If you know the literal truth, whether it's the existence of God and what he wrote in a book that tells me what to do, and, and I don't mean to belittle you. Let's get to that in just a second. I'm not belittling, belittling the, the religions of the book. We can talk about Corbin's take on that in a minute, and then we can get to hermeneutics. Um, it's, it's when you decide that Newtonian physics is the truth. And then you find out, you know, a few hundred years later that, well, it was true as far as it went, but it's eh, not complete. And so you get Einstein and quantum mechanics and all that other stuff. 
and the same for religions, and the same, same for any ism that you can find, Marxism, feminism, masculinism, you know, capitalism. If you think this is it, we're done, we got the answer, then you're screwed, you know? What rationalism should teach you, and what it teaches the greatest rationalists across the board, is this looks good to me right now on the basis of the evidence that I have. That's what science is. Science is always based on hypotheses. Some of those hypotheses are extraordinarily well-founded, others not so much. But every great scientist, and I would argue every great rationalist, always knows they're peering into the darkness, and you only take those truths as useful hypotheses, you don't push them into the realm of the certain. I think it's fair to say that some of the greatest mystics in world history were also very rational. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah, there's <laughs> I mean, the first thing that comes to mind, and I, and I haven't followed the scholarship on this, so I don't know if this is a true story or not, but many people have said that at the end of his life, Thomas Aquinas had a vision in which he realized that the entire Summa Theologica was like a little tiny drop in a sea of unknowing. And he realized, oh my gosh, oh, everything that I have thought, oh my God, it's all just, ah, it all just disappears. And, and, and I, in, in my little world of scholarship and thought about Henri Corbin, he makes the same point about several of his mystical theologians. Um, Avicenna in particular, in Corbin's book, Avicenna and the Visionary Recital, makes an argument that not all, every scholar of Avicenna takes seriously, and that's actually okay. Um, Corbin says, you know, Avicenna, and this was back in the old days when if you were a scholar, you were a scientist and an astronomer and a theologian and a biologist and a lawyer and a doctor. I mean, you know, if you, you, there were no, there were no distinctions. This was all doing God's work. It was investigating God's creation. So Avicenna was one of the great polymaths of all time. And Corbin argues that among his writings, we have three or four that are just these little poetry things that he wrote near the end of his life. And Corbin says, what we see in these visionary recitals is Avicenna becoming conscious of himself and the nature of his own work. And I don't have the quote handy, but it's something like, all of those ideas and proofs which he thought were about the objective reality of things were actually his own soul manifesting itself. And so, so it turns in on yourself and you realize, oh shit, these are my ideas. I thought they were absolute truths about the nature of reality. And Corbin says, when that dawns on you, then you're free. Because then you can look back on the production of your intellect and say, well, you know, it wasn't half bad. I did an okay, that's not bad. I like that. But you realize, oh, 
Oh, it's just a t- oh shit, <laughs> you know, and and then you're then you're in then you're in it, and you realize, oh man, wow, how inflated I was to think that I understood reality, you know. So it's not that rationalism isn't useful. I mean, look, you know, I mean, look at all the stuff we are able to do with reality understood that way. But when you say that's it, we're done, then you, then you, I mean, then you cut off the potential for human spiritual development. But then, of course, you also cut off the the potential for human scientific and material development. Story, very quick story. Back in the late eighteen hundreds, there were there were physicists in, in 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 Europe who were telling their students they should go into business because physics was all we had. We got it down. You know, all these hundreds of years after Newton, we've got everything figured out. There will be no more need for physics. And you should go in business instead. Then, bang, you get Einstein and quantum mechanics. and the, You know, going back to your comment about the Judaism that you, this hap- that you grew up with, this happens to everybody in every culture, in every circumstance that you finally get, you think, oh man, we got this down. We know what God wants. We know how the world works. And something happens and it all comes crumbling down. And if you live with an awareness, as the poets and the musicians and the artists have, that it's in some sense, it's not all imagination, but the imagination is the place where all creativity occurs, then you're not going to be surprised when things start crumbling behind you and you'll have some place to move to. I get the impression that you're pointing toward a topic that I asked you about several minutes ago, the relationship between the individual soul and the soul of the world. Okay, so now we've... Yeah, but see, yes, as if I had planned this, which I hadn't. But but now we're moving in a we're 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 moving in a space of the imagination, which has already taken rationalism and materialism and and put it in. I was going to say put it in its place, but I don't know what its place is. We we've, we've we've just stepped outside of it at least for a little bit. So the relationship between the individual soul and the anima mundi is um <laughs> do I understand it? No. In order to begin to um let's not talk about understanding it. Let's suggest that that relationship is open to experiencing, okay? And and, and notice here <laughs> that in order to talk about it, we really do have to speak poetically. That is to say, not in terms of belief, or fact, or knowledge in the usual sense, but in the sense of imagining it. I, I, I love one of the, I learned an enormous amount from a statement by the American poet Robert Duncan, 
who long ago in the 80s, I think, said, um, I finally figured out about the difference between believing and imagining. He says, they're two different systems. When I'm believing, then I can't imagine. When I'm imagining, then I have no need to believe. Because he thought, belief and knowledge kind of come together. You believe something until you know about it. But when you're imagining, you're moving in a different world. And I would argue, and I think artists, poets, and musicians know this intuitively, things tend to get a little more interesting when you're imagining because you're aware of your active engagement with reality. And I would also make the point very strongly that scientists, or at least scientists when they're doing the best science, are also aware of this, you know, that when you're looking at things, they're kind of looking back at you. Your engagement with the world is reciprocal. It's, it's very much interanimated. That is to say, the world has a responsiveness that you in turn respond to. And it's a, it's a kind of perpetual loop, to put it in Jeffrey Kripal's terms, that the terms that the world has a kind of strange loopiness to it that it's very easy to ignore. And, and when you ignore the strange loopiness of things, then you're becoming, then you become to the degree that you are ignorant of that, you become increasingly literalist and fundamentalist. And you expect that the world is going to stay pretty much the way it was, whether you're there or not. And there's truth to that, of course. But there are ways of engaging with reality which are more personal. Read poetry. Listen, oh, listen to music. Um, and so the question about the difference between the individual soul and the soul of the world is that they're tied together by this kind of experience. Am I going to, I, I don't know whether my individual soul is, um, um, eternal. I guess I'll find out. I used to think that that was utterly absurd to think. And now I kind of think, Huh. Actually, it would make more sense if it were. But what would, what would that, what would that be? Would it be me? Corbin says somewhere that, well, you know, the, the, your soul as Tom Cheatham, son of Richard Cheatham, not so much. <laughs> Maybe not. But something in you is continuous with the soul of the world and 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 hillman and and some of his followers have said that that soul itself isn't a thing it's a way of it's a style of experiencing and so i think i think that one of the problems that christianity has had over the millennia and not all christians 
You know, I mean, <laughs> it's like Judaism, Islam, Christianity, as if they were things and they are not. <laughs> you know, go to southern Alabama and experience Christianity in those little churches and go to Rome and experience it there. You know, that, 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 that extraordinary diversity cuts, you know, it's, it happens in every single religion. And so we do a disservice to religious folk everywhere when we label them as whatever um what what you're what you're engaging in there is is living experience and when you say my soul and you start literalizing this thing you go off wrong you know so when we're discussing the differences, which there, I guess, must be between the world soul and my soul, don't go looking for an answer. <laughs> go looking for, no, I mean, really, go looking for experience. That's, that's the take-home message. The conventional way of uh, looking at this question of the individual and the world is, uh, as I understand it, would be I'm alive, I'm, I'm biological, I have consciousness, I have movement, I'm a creature, but the world is not alive in the same way that I am. The world is not a... a uh, a conscious being. It's not a, an animal being. And, and actually, I tend to think that that viewpoint is incorrect. I think the world is just as much alive as I am. So, so here's a good, here's a good place where the scientist in me and the other part of me, whatever that is, the bigger part, um, they start having a battle because I was trained as a biologist. Um, and I know a lot about biology. And that's both, well, I mean, it's just purely wonderful. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I got to say, just as a footnote, the more you know about biology, the more astonishing are the complexity of any living being becomes. <sighs> Maybe I can go in that way. So... So let's think. I got to do make an outrageous move because because to answer these questions and in any depth is, is impossible. But let's let's imagine. Okay, so so you got us, and we are super complicated. We're so complicated. I mean, I mean, we are so complicated. It's a it's a glory and a wonder. But then I spent forty years of my life staring into microscopes, and one of the things you can discover staring into a microscope is a oh any of the pick your favorite single celled ciliate, you know. Let's pick a volvox or something. Well, no, let's they're multicellular. Uh, pick a tiny little single celled organism and watch it for a while. Nobody understands how they work, and 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 recently, I'm mean, tempted to go into detail, but I won't. The more biologists discover about how cells operate, the more wonderful it becomes, and the more clear it becomes that gosh, that's that's pretty remarkable. And I'm not suggesting here that God's little finger is driving every paramecium, because I'm not, though it could be. Um, and then now move from the bottom up. I read an article, and I can't give you the source, though it was probably in Quanta a few 
a couple years ago about the proton. Now we're in physics rather than biology. There was a remarkable article, unintelligible much of it to me, um, pointing out that the most complex object in the universe is the proton. <laughs> um, okay. And it made, you know, I don't really understand contemporary physics, but it, it had to me that same feeling. Here's this little tiny, I mean, it's unimaginably tiny. And it turns out the physicists, the closer they look at it, it's like, holy shit, this is, this is, this is crazy. This is so crazy complicated that they don't know what they throw up their hands. And in my experience as a biologist and to some degree in the other sciences, the closer you look at things, the more your jaw drops, you know? It doesn't matter whether you're looking at the galaxies or the paramecia or, for heaven's sakes, even a proton. And, and the takeaway here is, you know, it's not entirely clear to me that there is an, an, an unbridgeable chasm between the living and the non-living. Maybe it's like, more like there's stuff we know a lot about because we are it, <laughs> you know? And then there's stuff we know less about and we think, oh, it's inert. It's inorganic. It is not alive. I mean, I would just guess come back in a million years, and whether we're around, which I doubt, somebody with some intelligence is going to be saying, oh, it's all, what's, what's the Hindu metaphor? Indra's net. It's all this extraordinary network of actions and reactions and interrelations at, at, at levels which are both physical and what we tend to call spiritual. I mean, we're just, we've only been around for a couple hundred thousand years, man. We're just getting started on understanding stuff, and we think we got it down. I have heard people like uh, Fritjof Capra, who I interviewed on this very topic at one time, arguing we have to shift our worldview that physics is not the bedrock of science, it's biology. And once we understand that biology is the bedrock of science, then we can have a world that works. Uh, it will be ecologically sustainable. I gather in your book you do take issue with that point of view. Oh, I take issue with any point of view. Well, it's as you have just stated it, um, that biology is the bedrock, um, I would take, I, first of all, part of me would be wildly enthusiastic about that um, because I'm a biologist. And, 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 um, and I have enormous, um, enthusiasm for contemporary theoretical biology, which has been transformed by, um, complexity theory and chaos theory to the point that Many, as Capra suggests, many of the most interesting, exciting 
thrilling developments in our understanding of reality are happening in biology or biology adjacent fields because it's easier let's put it this way it's easier to get at biology using the tools of contemporary complexity theory than it is the proton <laughs> though that's i think partly what was going on in that article on the other hand the reason i would take issue with that approach as you stated it and i don't know what caprov's statement might look like is that just be gentle with it you know just be gentle yes let's do biology as the bedrock science but, but let's get get rid of the bedrock metaphor let's let's i mean and i honestly honestly i i, I mean that um because practicing scientists in their worst moments they would say yes i now have the bedrock reality that sounds like my father you know you don't want to do that you want to do this is, is where the excitement is and then you do your science you know but you stop looking for bedrock realities and and and, and, and then you will be less tempted to say, aha, now we understand everything. The theory is, it's not so much biology as a bedrock foundation for reality. It's anybody who's looking for a theory of everything. That's what really bothers me. Well, I think maybe it's time now to go back to the title of your book, uh, the one we're really talking about, Green Man, Earth Angel, because you're making an allusion to a, a very mysterious figure in uh, Islamic culture, uh, Hitter, who are also known as the Green Man, who is sometimes uh, equated with the, the prophet Elijah in, in Jewish tradition, a, a mysterious figure, very real, very material, but who never dies. Yeah, yeah. So, so this opens us out onto an ocean without a shore, as Ibn Rabi would say. So, so the account that I'm going to very vaguely sketch now it comes from Henri Corbin, and and and, and I want and I always try to make perfectly clear that I am not a scholar of Islam in, in any sense. In some sense, I'm a bit of a scholar of Ari Corbin. So what I am channeling here is Corbin's understanding of this mysterious figure in Shura 18 of the Quran, and so. Oh, and the translation of Kira as Green Man comes via Louis Massignon, who was a, a teacher and mentor of Corbin at the Sorbonne years and years ago. And the story, as I recall it, is Moses, who's the giver of the law, meets in this small, you know, it's, 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 it, the Quran's always doing this. It's a little tiny episode, you know. 
it's a little tiny episode uh, um, that just appears and disappears, and 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 the, much of the Quran is like that. It's it's um, uh, as as Sayyid Hussein Nazir said, the Quran is an example of what happens when divine speech tries to put itself into human language. You know, it just fractures and blows up, and you know, it just human language just can't possibly can't possibly accommodate um, um, uh, the divine speech. And that's one of the reasons the Quran is, has the structure it has, but it's also one of the reasons that this episode has such importance for Corban and Massignon and others, because it's all about interpretation. The, the take-home message from this little encounter between Keter and Moses is essentially that Keter says, well, you got the laws, but actually, and that's good. We need them. We need the laws. Because without laws, people just, you know, they need to know what the laws are. Corbin, of course, is a little more excited about the stuff behind the laws. As many of us are, we don't really want to be told what to do. We want to know what we get at the end, you know. What Keter tells Moses, he shows him that, well, you know, if you take those laws literally, you know, it's, it's, there's actually a lot more there. Once you pass through um, the law, you discover, oh, you discover the ocean without a shore. And what's required for moving through the literalism of the laws is hermeneutics, which is a word I'm I'm often um, uh, 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 upbraided for using, but it's essential, or at least the idea behind hermeneutics is is essential for Corbin and Hillman and Jung, and I gotta say Jeffrey Kripal, as, as it is for the rest of us. Um, and I'm I'm partly. I'm, I'm so enthusiastic about my recent engagement with Jeff Kripal's work that I can't help but bring it in here. I think it's, I think it's in his book with Whitley Strieber, The Supernatural, where he talks about hermeneutics in a few little paragraphs, which are among the most clear that I have ever seen for a general audience. Because hermeneutics, you use, it just means interpretation. What, to bring it into our immediate context here, we were just talking about the soul of the world and the human soul having this mutuality, this interpersonal or inter inter active relationship structure that inter <sighs> that relationality between the objects well so I'm gonna be extreme here in Corbin's worldview there aren't any objects there's only persons. It would take a half hour to, to make that seem plausible to many people, unless they're poets, in which case they know that. That's why poetry happens, because there are no objects. There's only persons or things that are like at least quasi-persons. That's what allows you to talk about them in poetry, you know. So, 
So you've got this. This is what Peter is trying to explain to Moses, all right, that, well, you've got the laws, and those are the literal laws, but behind the literal laws, which you have to have, otherwise you can't figure out how to make your coffee in the morning, you know, I mean, just have to, things have to be stable enough for there to be laws. But then once you get the hang of being human and you're not killing people right and left and you're being a basically nice person, all the things you get in the commandments, then beyond that, oh my word, then you get to be a poet and you get to be a creator and you get to participate in, in, in the deepest imaginative ways with Everyone you know, all the animals, all the trees, even the damn rocks. <laughs> okay, so what what Kider is doing is he's explaining what Kripal means by hermeneutics to Moses, so that Moses won't just give the laws and say that's it, and that's the kind of Judaism that you were critical criticizing in the beginning, or at least I heard you to be criticizing. Real simple, real straightforward, nothing mystical. We don't have to go there because it's dangerous, which it actually kind of is dangerous, which is why every religious tradition keeps keter at a, no, we, no, you don't tell the kids about that. You know, you wait till you're an adult and you got the laws down and then then you can start to screw around with mysticism. I mean, even Plato knew that in his context, yeah, you should go, you should be in the army, you know, you should do your duty as a citizen, and you don't mess around with this transcendent stuff and the good and the one. You don't do that until you're old. <laughs> you know, but we assume, yeah, we assume that education, you know, starts at the end. Anyway, you see my point. <laughs> Well, the Jewish tradition is quite explicit with regard to the mystical Kabbalah. You have to be 40 years old before you start. Boy, I'll tell you, the older I get, I wouldn't have wanted to hear that when I was 18 or 25, but now I'm a little over 70 and it seems like a really good idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 40 still seems very young. Oh, yeah, you bet it does. <laughs> it seems super young. <laughs> Back to Hitter. I get the impression that the soul of the world has a lot to do with Hitter. Yes, it does. Gosh, because... Because he is... Another way to another way to, to to stay within Corban's framework, another which I'm happy to do uh, perennially and at least in the, in the moment here. Though there are, there are parts of what I'm the claims that I'm making here which would have at least made Corban nervous, but within Corban's um, framework, what Keter is 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 describing is the thought of the heart. It's hima um, in, in Arabic. I don't know about the pronunciation there, but one of the key places of contact between Corbin's cosmology and, and the work of James Hillman, who influenced me arguably just as much as Corbin, or at least pretty close. Um, one of the key points of contact between them is this idea of the thought of the heart being the central 
foundational, <laughs> dare I say, um, activity of the human person. We, oh, I, I, I hope I haven't said this before, but one of my favorite anecdotes from, from Jung, I, I, I guess it's probably in Memories, Dreams, and Reflections. Um, he visited Taos Pueblo in New Mexico sometime in the late 20s, I think. And he's talking with the chief of Taos Pueblo and who says to him that, that they think that the whites, you know, the people who were invading their lands were all crazy. And he says, why do you think they're crazy? They say they think with their heads. And Jung says, oh, uh, right. Well, what do you think with? And he says, we think here. We think with our heart. And, and my, my conclusion from that, because I think with my head, is that over the course of Western history, we got used to the idea that thinking is something that you do up here. It's divorced from your body. It's divorced from your emotions and your feelings and your sensations. It's abstract. And Corbin's work and Hillman's and Jung's too, and the work of any poet and artist is an, is an attempt to live things differently than that, to recognize that there is um, a cognitive function to sympathy, as uh, Corbin says, that, that no cognition, there's a special kind of cognition which is associated with the brain. But neurophysiologists will tell you more and more that, yeah, it's pretty misleading, actually, to, to think of the brain as a computer in a vat. That actually, it's much more, what was Andy Clark's phrase, you know, there's a, there's a, um, uh, uh, there's a mind outside of you. There's an environmental aspect to your cognition in the absence of which, oh, put yourself in one of those uh, sensory isolation tanks and you just start having visions because your imagination cannot function without thoughts and feelings and sensations. And in the absence of a body, it starts just spinning imagination, which it's doing all the time anyway. Um, and therefore, it is incumbent upon us as creatures embedded in the biosphere to think more with our hearts than we currently do. I get the impression that, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that there's still something there, there. I guess the word I'm looking for is spirit. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Um, yeah, I, 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 I guess I have developed over the years a little bit of an allergy to, to the, to the word spirit. And not because, not for ontological reasons, but for personal psychological reasons. And I get this from Hillman, it's his fault, because he had such an aversion to the word spirit, in spite of the fact 
that he was he was so enthusiastic about Henri Corbin, who is all spirit, and that's always been an interesting question for me. How could Hillman be so enthusiastic about Corbin and so allergic to the notion of spirits? But that's a question for Hillman scholars. But what what Hillman told me, I mean, via his books decades ago, and it made sense to me then, and it still makes sense to me, that spirit tends to be literalized into certain components of theology, science, and philosophy, and to be abstracted as the transcendent manifestations of human, of the psyche. That made so much sense to me, you know, oh, the transcendent God of Christianity, the transcendent forms of Plato, and certain kinds of science. I was always attracted to theoretical physics, which is as abstract, and I would argue, which isn't entirely abstract, but is as abstract as it's possible for a human organism to imagine. I loved that stuff. And Hillman kind of rubbed my nose in it and said, see, see what you're missing. You're going to God and to abstract physics and to philosophy to avoid your heart. And I thought decades ago, oh dear, he's sure right about that. Because this is the heart stuff. It's like Newton with his alchemy, you know. Oh, God, let's take a break from this emotional business, which I cannot deal with, and let's do the Principia Mathematica, you know? And there, that was so obviously true of me, that I have this residual nervousness about spirituality, you know, and, 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 and I don't think that that's a bad thing to hold those with a little bit of caution. And it's been going on in contemporary Western philosophy for uh, maybe a hundred years now, the, the, the worry about transcendence and the emphasis on imminence. And here comes, here comes a drum roll. One of the, I'm, I'm, I'm channeling Jeffrey Kripal again here, insofar as I, insofar as I currently understand him. He is arguing, I think, beautifully what I've been circling all these years, which is that transcendence and imminence can be brought together with hermeneutics. <laughs> that is to say, that, that gap that we tend to experience between what we imagine as the transcendent and what we imagine as the imminent can be overcome, can be worked with, which is a wonderful alchemical metaphor, can be worked with emotionally, cognitively, sensuously, if we understand what the green man was trying to teach, okay? I, I really think he's right about that. And I really think that, that, that bringing that analysis to bear on what I've been doing for 30 years or more is really fruitful because it, it gives me, 
It gives me confidence in what I've been saying and, and brings all of his expertise in comparative religion to bear on this, on this issue, which I've always found to be puzzling, lively, and, um, um, utterly essential in the contemporary world. Because what we want is we want people to have, uh, um, souls of bulk and substance in the words of Ortega, which I recently saw Hillman quoting. Um, what we're, what we, what most people are looking for is what Ortega called a soul of bulk and substance. And because we don't imagine our souls that way, we go to stuff and we buy things and we go to capitalism and materialism because we don't understand transcendence at all. And it clearly doesn't have bulk and substance. And who does alchemy? You know, I mean, that's not something that you do on a Friday night. And so many, many, many people are just desperate for this kind of sense of reality. And I, anything that all of us can do to help people find it seems to me to be profoundly worthwhile. Well, Tom Chitha, I think we have had a conversation that was soulful and full of bulk and substance. <laughs> I, I hope so. I I think we have, even even if we haven't resolved uh, the battle for the soul of the world. <laughs> we can engage it. <laughs> yeah. Tom, it's been... A wonderful, wonderful conversation. I'm delighted to have had this time with you, and I hope we can find many more reasons to continue. That would be great. I really appreciate it. I really, really do. Thanks very much. My pleasure, truly. And for those of you who are watching or listening, thank you for being with us. You are the reason that we are here. I imagine that by now, many of you already realize that, in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint, and our first title is, Is There Life After Death? 